Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one titled, A Revival of the Case for Term Limits. The date, June 2020. When one of the most substantial pieces of legislation was passed in 2010, the Affordable Care Act, Nancy Pelosi famously stated, quote, We have to pass the bill so that you can find out what is in it, unquote. This was logically met with a harangue. This 2,000-page law altering one-sixth of the U.S. economy was so important to the future of the country that members of Congress were not actually expected to, you know, read it. But it actually went even further than that. The 2,000 pages were not actually the law itself. Over 400 times, the Affordable Care Act, or ACA, referenced not how the law was to be implemented, but what the actual content of the law would entail. This was not a policy document, but rather a priority one, and the actual governance itself was left to the executive branch to build. In too many issues, ranging from the environment, immigration, war powers, regulation, and gun control, Congress punts the heavy lifting of legislation to the executive branch. And another congressional tactic is a reliance on the courts in the hope that, as Roberts did with the Affordable Care Act, the Supreme Court will clean up the mess. In fact, a few weeks ago, in Clayton v. Bostock, the Supreme Court again wrote legislation. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act talks of sex meaning in the 1960s context to mean gender, but makes no mention of sexual orientation. In the 1960s, there was a prominent movement for black and women's empowerment, but the Congress of 1965 was not about to undertake a decision on gay rights, much less rights about transgendered. If Congress, as constituted 55 years later, believes that Title VII should extend to sexual orientation, They could have passed a law declaring as much, but again, they punted. And again, as with ACA, the courts had to clean up the mess. The reason that Congress is so reluctant to perform their duties is twofold. By democratizing the selection of Congress, including primary systems and the 17th Amendment, members are now vulnerable on every vote on every piece of legislation. This exposure does not emanate from an inter-party opponent, but rather an intra-party rival. Veer much towards, towards the center, and a member is flanked by a more ideologically pure version of oneself. Yet, go too far to the flanks and risk being labeled a radical. The other issue is simple fundraising. Again, the seeming value of taking party leaders completely out of the mix and increasing democracy means that Congress is in perpetual campaign mode, driving a perpetual fundraising machine. This is why the founders envisioned the United States as a republic and not a democracy. It is also the goal to avoid majoritarianism by having the state leaders choose the senators, something changed by the 17th Amendment. The first part of their dilemma avoiding hostile voters that could be used as primary fodders, and the second part, continual campaigns, both emanate from the same principle, the members' desire to hold on to their seat at all costs. In essence, Congress, the legislative body, 
no longer legislates. So what do they do? Well, they run for office again and again and again. The answer is to take them out of campaign mode, literally with term limits. Now, there was a time in our recent history, particularly from the mid-1990s to the mid-2000s, when term limits seemed an unstoppable force. Even third-party candidate Steve Forbes put it on the map. And in fact, a number of local legislators and governorships implemented term limits on, at that local or state level. But as far as Congress goes, nothing can stem the tide of history faster than a congressperson fighting for their seat. And after some initial successes, the movement slackened. Now is the time to revive it. There is a term limit already in place, and it is guaranteed with the 22nd Amendment. Passed on February 27, 1951, the 22nd Amendment limits the presidency to two elected terms or a maximum of 10 years. In the case of, let's say, Lyndon B. Johnson, he could have exceeded his eight years had he chosen to run in 1968. Scott Bombay, writing for the Constitution Daily, notes of the amendment, quote, These doubts about unlimited presidential terms in office did not fade away after President Washington set the unofficial two-term president in 1796. Scholar Stephen W. Stathis explains in a 1990 paper that Congress considered early versions of a presidential term limits in 1803-1808, and the Senate actually approved term limit resolutions in 1824 and 1826 only to be rejected by the House, unquote. The fundamental concern was the fear that a president would use the power of their office to secure that third selection or fourth re-election or keep going on, creating a president for life. Between Washington and the passage of the 22nd Amendment, there were several attempts to create a law limiting presidential terms, yet the necessary votes were just not into place due to presidential maintenance of the two-term standard being one of the many reasons. Since Washington, six presidents have been elected twice and completed their terms without choosing to run again prior to 1951. Quote, in 1876, the House passed a resolution that the president established by Washington and other presidents of the United States in retiring from the presidential office after their second term has become universal concurrence, a part of our Republican system of government, unquote, adds Bombay. It was Roosevelt's setting aside of the Washington precedent that made the desire for an amendment on presidential term limits necessary and expedient. Not coincidentally, it was Republicans who pushed for this amendment with the help of Southern Democrats. In an essay titled, Two Chairs for the 22nd Amendment, the two-term limit for presidents helps prevent political stagnation, writer Thomas E. Cronin states, quote, the two-term limit is healthy for the two-party system. It helps prevent political stagnation. The two parties benefit and are rejuvenated by the challenge at least every eight years of nurturing, recruiting, and nominating a new term of national leaders, unquote. But of course, does that uh, theory not include Congress as well? 
Writing in 1994, Dan Greenberg of the Heritage Foundation noted, quote, term limits would ameliorate many of Americans' most serious political problems by counterbalancing incumbent advantages, ensuring congressional turnover, securing independent congressional judgment, and reducing election-related incentives for wasteful government spending. Perhaps most important, Congress would acquire a sense of its own fragility and temporariness, possibly even coming to learn that it would acquire more legitimacy as an institution by doing better work on fewer tasks, unquote. And George Will, who has written extensively on the inertia of Congress, or as he likes to call it the supine Congress, in a 2014 Washington Post column notes, quote, Congress increasingly attracts people uninterested in reversing its institutional anemia. They are undeterred by, or perhaps are attracted by, the fact that they will not be responsible for important decisions, such as taking the nation into war. As Congress becomes more trivial, its membership becomes less serious. It has an ever higher portion of people who are eager to make increasingly strenuous exertions to hold offices that are decreasingly consequential. End quote. In a January 29th, 2019 article writing for the Cato Institute, Doug Bando states, quote, Term limits most directly prevent politicians from turning office holding into a career, spending 30 or 40 years as a congressman or senator, hanging on until they can barely function. Forcing rotation in office would also hinder the development of permanent relationships among members and interests and lobbyists. Even when these ties did develop, they would last only until the member's term ends. Unquote. Needless to say, opposition is fierce, and it is not lost on the proponents of term limits that the very people who would have to vote for them are those with the most to lose, career politicians. And these include career politicians, sadly to say, as the conservative historian, on both sides of the aisle. There are other arguments proffered to support term limits. Writing for the Brookings Institute, author Casey Burgett in a January 18, 2018 article states, quote, quote, despite widespread support, instituting term limits would have numerous negative consequences for Congress, unquote. Burgett knows Burkett goes on to list the following, taking power away from voters, decrease congressional capacity, lack of incentives or policy experience, removal of effective lawmakers, and increase, rather than decrease, of influence of special interests. Those are the counter arguments. Those are always the arguments put forth, again, by those career politicians who are defending their own seats, but also by a, a fair amount of people who actually like those term limits, including some of those influential special interests we just mentioned. It's interesting that Burgett lists that influential special interests as one of his, his final points, and yet earlier we just saw Bandau state how much that special interests actually benefit from the longevity of these Congress people. It is alarmingly easy to refute each and every one of Burgett's contentions. Given the nature of gerrymandered districts in the case of the House and the power of incumbency in the case of the Senate, there is already a limited choice for voters. Of the past six elections, the rate of House incumbency never dipped below 85%, and that of the Senate never below 79%. 
Yet the safety does not set aside the continuous need for campaigning. Rather, it is a result of the focus on members on keeping their seats rather than doing their jobs. I want to be clear, this is not a paradox. I'm talking about their vulnerability with their seats, and yet their rates of return and incumbency are incredibly high, historically high, as we will see in the moment. But it's historically high because the goal of a congressperson is not to legislate, it's not to govern the country. Their goal is, is to keep their seats. So let's take on another one of Burgett's contentions. Congress has already abrogated its legislative prerogatives to the executive branch. So when we hear that they're not focused on it, well, they're already not focused on it. This has been proven not just by passage of the Affordable Care Act, but by Dodd-Frank, the power to make war, as previously mentioned. How about a comprehensive reform of immigration that never seems to come despite bipartisan clamoring for it and a host of other major legislative initiatives. There is already a decrease in congressional capacity because either legislators do not care to legislate or do not have the time with all of the continuous fundraising. And then there's the argument around minimizing effective lawmakers. An example I would throw up would be Paul Ryan. That's also erroneous. Nancy Pelosi has been in Congress for 33 years, longer than most people have actually been alive. And her intelligence and success are unquestioned. But successful at what exactly? Her effectiveness as a legislator is unknown because she has done so little of it. Meanwhile, Ryan, a lawmaker who could actually write a law, has term-limited himself. When the gavel was returned to Nancy Pelosi, one of the things that pundits, especially those on the left, kept saying, and they kept saying this admiringly, was, well, they love Pelosi with that gavel. She can really raise funds. So that's the value of Nancy Pelosi to the Democratic Party. That's the reason that she is one of the only House speakers who lost the gavel and got it back. Well, we don't know actually whether she can write a law or not, but by golly, she sure can get the money flowing. Then there's the special interest argument. Burgett states that, quote, however the term limit literature commonly finds that more novice legislators will look to fill their own informational and policy gaps by an increased reliance on special interests and lobbyists, unquote. That's hilarious. If the goal is not to legislate, but rather get elected, the power of lobbyists and special interests will only grow, not wane. Would not a legislator in their 10th term and running for re-election be highly concerned on where the National Education Association stood on education reform? In fact, isn't it not in the NEA's best interest to not do education reform, to keep all of those politicians elected and sitting prone in their seats? Given that they can turn out the vote, and raise the money. It is also difficult to believe that a person who's been in office for 24 years will be more immune to policy proposals from the likes of the NRA or the ABA than would a congressperson in their third year. And then there is that argument again that Bando makes. This is the opposite side of the coin. The longer a person is in office, the more indebted they are to those special interests and lobbyists who got them elected year after year after year. There is never that moment in which they're going to be thinking, this one is for the nation. 
Then there is the final argument of the incestuous nature that exists between public servants and lobbying organizations. First, this goes on today without term limits. When the federal government controls $3 trillion of GDP directly and influences many, many times that amount, there will be lobbyists attempting to influence governmental decisions. There will always be that. Having more term-limited Congress people available to staff lobbying jobs, to go to work for banks, think tanks, any of the other innumerable places that, uh, or law firms that ex-Congress people then go and earn big bucks and then usually come back into the public sphere and then leave it and earn big bucks and then come back into the policy sphere and on and on and on. That is, goes on today. Now, Burgett begins his dissertation with a quote from founder Roger Sherman. Quote, nothing renders government more unstable than a frequent change of the person's that administer it, unquote, from an open letter written in 1788. After he wrote these words, the American people then elected four out of five presidents who elected to term limit themselves. In a 2019 work issued by the Federation of American Scientists entitled Congressional Careers, Service Tenure and Patterns of Member Service from 1789 through 2019, the report states, quote, During much of the 19th century, the average tenure of representatives and senators remained relatively st steady, with incoming representatives generally averaging between two and three years of prior service in most Congresses, and senators averaging between three and five years. Okay? But beginning in the late 19th and through much of the 20th century, Average tenure for members in both changers steadily increased. The average years of service for members of the 116th Congress as of January 3rd, 2019, when the Congress convened, was 8.6 years for the House and 10.1 years for the Senate, unquote. In other words, term limits haven't doubled. They have almost tripled in the last 100 years. And simultaneously, and not in, in not a coincidence, the power of the executive branch has also steadily increased. It is noteworthy that during the 19th century, when Congress was still, well, when it was still a co-equal branch of government, can't argue that now, and passed landmark legislation, including the groundwork for the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, its terms were far shorter than in the 20th and 21st centuries. Sherman was wrong on term limits, and they need to be implemented today. Thank you.